once again, the thing that we are exploring in uh, these uh, studies is the, uh, or are, the work of God's grace in terms of the salvation of sinners, the fact that God has provided for us at the point of salvation some marvelous things that are uh, given to us free and postpaid. They're totally a work of grace. There's nothing uh, that we do to merit any of these things. Um, and uh, the, the pattern and the picture gives to us a balanced view, I believe, of the whole matter of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And so uh, we're exploring these things and uh, have already considered uh, three of them and uh, in some detail. And now we're talking, uh, we started last week talking about one of the things that he did was put us into a condition where we are free from judgment. So that's what we'll be talking about tonight. Thank you, Father, for your goodness. Thank you for the fact that you have provided so wonderfully for us, that you have given to us the opportunity to be free, to have a liberty in Jesus Christ, to never stand in, in fear of judgment, but rather to stand free and to know that there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Thank you for that. Help us to grasp it. Help us to learn from these things so that we might be able to use our freedom not for an occasion for the flesh, but rather so that we might serve the Lord Christ. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation, kata krima, kata having the idea of down, often uh, used as the preposition of norms and standards, but used in this case to speak of that uh, judgment that is uh, normal for mankind because of their sin and uh, put together with the word crema, which has to do with a, a judicial decision, a verdict uh, that has been laid down, kata crema. There is therefore now no kata crema, no judgment, no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Now the reason for that is because God bore, or I should put it, God allowed Jesus Christ to bear our sins in his own body on the tree. And uh, that was what we would say when listing the judgments, uh, that the judgments that are coming, seven of them that are given in Scripture, uh, that have uh, to do with, with uh, in a sense, a finality of God's judgment, those seven judgments. The first of those is the greatest judgment in all of human history, the major judgment that came upon the Lord Jesus Christ as he died on the cross. It's because he bore the judgment that we, therefore, can be declared free from judgment if we are in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, simply because God has provided that judgment already in the person of Jesus Christ. The second thing 
and we just got started on this last week, is what we call the self-judgment of believers. Because Jesus Christ has uh, carried our sins away, because he has, has fulfilled the type of the scapegoat who was slain, and then the, uh, the live goat that was released into the wilderness, taking our sins away, uh, because he has fulfilled that type, because he has borne our sin, uh, we do not have to face the judicial verdict of God in terms of condemnation. Uh, but when there is sin in our life, it is totally necessary, according to what Scripture says, for a man to examine himself and to uh, so eat of that bread and drink of that cup, one of the uh, texts uh, that deal with the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that matter of self-judgment, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, now that's self-judgment. doesn't mean it puts us under condemnation, but it is a matter of releasing us from uh, the possibility that God may have to chasten us for our sin. Uh, whenever a person uh, has a, uh, a disease or illness or something, a lot of people conclude that that person probably has sinned and that God has judged them. Be very, very careful of your terminology. If sin is the cause for the illness, and that is certainly not always the case, but if sin indeed is the cause, what God wants is self-examination. And it's not judgment, but rather it's discipline. It's judgment when you deal with your sins. In other words, you are, you are examining yourself, you are arriving at a verdict as to whether your heart is right with God, uh, but you, uh, God is not going to judge your sins because you are in Christ. But he will discipline you. And so if uh, the discipline comes as a result of sin, uh, the way to care for it is 1 John 1, 9, Confess, which homologeo simply means to agree, to say the same thing as God says. And so if you tell a lie, uh, go to Scripture and find out what God calls a lie. Uh, that's just a good illustration because he tells us that a lie comes from the father of lies, who is his enemy, who is Satan himself. And therefore, the Lord Jesus Christ, in living his flawless life of perfection, here on earth as, as the flawless um, uh, Son of God, Son of Man, Jesus Christ had no guile, no deceit in his mouth. He didn't tell lies. He got himself into a lot of pickles uh, where people were trying to trap him. But he always challenged the situation with truth. Uh, there were times where he could have gotten out of uh, some of those jams quite easily by simply... Uh, telling a little white lie. He never told a little white lie, mainly because with his divine eyes, he could see no white in any lie. Uh, he could see that that came straight from the pit and indeed played into the hands of Satan. And so if you're tempted to tell a lie, and you tell the lie, uh, go to Scripture, find out what God says about lying, and then agree with him. And God says it's wrong, so you say it's wrong. God says it's sin, so you call it sin. God said that, that uh, it ultimately is going to trap you. So you admit uh, that, uh, uh, that the Lord is right and you are wrong. That's what confession is. Confession is not tears. 
uh, though tears may come uh, just uh, because of the emotion of the moment, but it, it has nothing to do with tears. It, has, uh, it, it, it doesn't even mean, in actual fact, that, uh, that you promise God that you're not going to do it anymore. You know what God will tell you if he would speak to you about telling lies as an example? If you told him you're not going to do that anymore, God will say that proves how self-deceived you are. You probably will. But when you do, uh, don't, uh, don't, call, uh, don't call it anything other than what it is. Call it what I call it. And I think there's a, there's a, a thought there that if you get in the habit of naming sins, calling them what God calls them, then it's going to bring about a change of your thinking and your, your uh, view of life. And after a while, it begins to, uh, to take its toll. And before you lie the next time, you think, oh no, if I tell this lie, I'm going to have to admit this is sin. And uh, maybe you'll begin to tell the truth. The book of uh, Ephesians tells us that we are to, uh, to not lie anymore, but instead we are to tell the truth, which is the remedy for lying. And then it gives us a hint as to why it is so important that you tell a lie, and that is because... Uh, of the the body concept. You hurt yourself when you tell a lie, even though for the moment you think you're helping yourself. And uh, But the whole idea is that you are, to, you are to judge yourself. You are to recognize that what you have done uh, is indeed wrong. Agree with God concerning your sin. If you do, he's faithful and just to forgive your sin, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now, I want you to go with me then to Psalm 32. We'll look at a few other verses that talk about this matter of self-judgment. Psalm 32. And look at verse 5. Now, David here has um, come to the place uh, where he is prepared to admit uh, his sin. And he he. He speaks in glowing terms of, of that uh, picture of himself after he's gotten this thing cleared up, all of Psalm 51, and, um, and he says how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Uh, this was the favorite psalm of uh, St. Augustine. Uh, Augustine was a considerable reprobate. Uh, he, was a, he had a godly mother, uh, who prayed for him constantly. In fact, so much did she pray for him that at his first possible opportunity, uh, he left home to go to Rome and seek his fortune. He wanted to go to Rome because Rome was sin city, and he wanted to be there. And he went and got himself involved in, in extreme immorality and riotous living. And he was having a ball until there in Rome, God brought some Christians across his path that uh, resumed the ministry to him that his mother had begun on her knees. And Augustine found Jesus Christ. It always bothered all Augustine, um, as it bothered Luther, uh, that uh, he had done so many things that were wrong. Uh, and, and Augustine probably did more wrong than Luther ever thought of doing but uh, it always bothered him. Not that he didn't believe in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, 
but he always uh, was one who I think, like the Apostle Paul, always wished it were not so, that he had not lived that way. Maybe some of us feel the same way. But Augustine loved this psalm uh, because he had been such a reprobate. And uh, when he came to the words of this psalm, it was such a comfort to again reckon on the fact that God has forgiven the sins and that the Lord doesn't impute iniquity and, and so on. You notice, uh, just in keeping with the illustration we gave a moment ago, in verse 2, it says, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Just another reference to that particular idea. But then he says, when I kept silent, that's, that is, when I did not judge myself, when I did not deal with the sin that is in my life, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Uh, there were psychosomatic problems that caused physical illness because of his guilt. That's what he's saying here. And uh, through my groaning all day long, he, would, he had deteriorated. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with, with the fever heat of summer. Now, in verse 5, he talks then a little bit about mechanics. And here's what he says. I acknowledged my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide come back to a, to a situation where uh, I was talking with a theologian who had visited here, um, a man who, who is something of a philosopher and, um, and uh, has written several books on ethics. And he had said something in one of his uh, uh, messages uh, that reinforced what I had read from his books, that he believed... Uh, mildly uh, in, in situation ethics. Uh, and the specific illustration that he used um, was that um, there might be occasions where telling a lie uh, might save a life. And if that were the case, then the higher good uh, takes precedence over the evil. And therefore, it, it could be justified on that basis. And, uh, and I said, well, don't we have to agree uh, with God and God's appraisal? And I don't see anything in Scripture that says that God says a lie is ever justified. God says it's sin. Uh, God, never, God never tells us um, that we have to save the life, but he does tell us we can't lie. And, uh, and so then he, he came up with this scenario. He said, uh, if your wife were being attacked, being raped, and, uh, and, and you could tell a lie. Uh, you could say something to the rapist uh, that would m make her not, make him not want to touch her. Uh, for instance, you know, she's got uh, uh, leprosy, or today it would be AIDS, I suppose. And the man uh, wouldn't want to jeopardize himself, and he might just run away and leave you alone. And you've saved your wife's life. And I said to him, I said, well, I have no problem with that. I said, if I found myself in that situation, I know I'm just sinful enough and deceitful enough in my natural state that in that kind of an emergency, I hope it wouldn't happen, but I just might tell a lie. But I said, uh, so you're probably right. There is a chance that I might do that because my heart's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But I said, the place that we differ is that after I'd done it, 
I wouldn't say it was right. And you would. And the reason I wouldn't say it right is because I would have to disagree with God concerning it. And 1 John 1.9 tells me I've got to agree with God before he will fully forgive and, uh, and cleanse me from every iniquity. And so therefore, in the final analysis, sooner or later, I've got to admit to God that that's sin if I want to go on in my Christian life. He didn't really have an answer for that. But that's the thing we're talking about here. Not a question of whether you will. If you, if you uh, uh, read First John, the verse before, uh, verse 9 says, that if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. Now, J. Vernon McGee translates that in the McGee translation. He says that if you say you have no sin, whoops, there's another one. And so that's the problem. We do sin. And God isn't out there trying to put, lay a guilt trip on us to make us feel, uh, just feel depressed about it because we sin. What he wants us to do is when we sin, say that is sin. Call it what it is. And be done with this kind of uh, weasel word, word language change that has been foisted on us by the public. I prefer, frankly, to call uh, sodomy, what God calls it. He calls it sodomy. And uh, for years there have been uh, sodomy laws in many of our states. And everybody knows what sodomy is. But nobody wants to use the word anymore. You know when they use it, I, I noticed this the other day, that when, when a, uh, a, a person violates a little child, uh, they will sometimes use the word sodomy. And uh, somehow when they say it, it, it comes out sounding so terrible. And yet they will not use it when it comes to the matter of, of uh, what do they call them, consenting parties. They won't use that word. They call it gay. And they've changed our language. Gay used to be a perfectly wonderful uh, word. In fact, it's in one of our Christmas carols. And... Uh, and people sing that, you know, and almost a little embarrassed anymore to sing, uh, to sing about our gay apparel, uh, because gay apparel isn't what it used to be, and uh, it used to be happy dress. Now it's got something altogether different with it. But the idea is that the world tries to dilute sin by what it calls it, and I I contend that if you've got a medicine cabinet and you've got a bottle with a skull and crossbones on it and great big red letters saying poison, that is a whole lot safer than a bottle sitting beside it which is equally as poisonous and called candy. If, you, if the child reaches up and sees the bottle with the skull and crossbones, he just might say, I don't think that's good for me. But if he reaches up and the bottle of poison says candy, he's going to take it down as quickly as he can because he believes that that's perfectly safe. Just because the label has been changed doesn't mean it's any less poisonous. And what God wants us to do is to get into the habit of dealing with sin as to what it is. And so adultery is adultery. It is immoral. It is impure. It is not an affair. You see? An affair somehow sounds so sweet and so nice. People don't just live together. They commit fornication. That's what they do. Etc. 
God wants you to call sin what it is. And David came to grips, having justified for nine months, he justified his sin with Bathsheba. And he said, it's not so bad. Uh, I sent uh, Uriah the Hittite. He was a soldier. Soldiers take risks. I sent him out to battle. He was killed, so that's no big deal. Oh, sure, I did it to cover this up. But you see, actually, I'm the king. And, um, and, and Bathsheba was fair game. Uh, and uh, so, you know, it, it wasn't so bad. He did that for nine months. And what does he say? In his heart of hearts, he said, I was being torn apart inside until I acknowledged my transgression. He judged himself. Understand? That's what we're talking about here. So, he tells us that, that uh, he acknowledges that and that finally the Lord opened his heart. He acknowledged his sin, his iniquity. He did not hide any longer. If a man uh, covers his he that covers his sins shall not prosper. David knew that. And so, therefore, he goes on and rejoices in what the Lord has done. Turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And uh, verse 1. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion. Blot out my transgressions. David wrote this at the time that Nathan the prophet came in and confronted him concerning his adultery with Bathsheba. Wash me, he says in verse 2, thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now notice how New Testament this is. He says in verse 3, for I know my transgressions. Confession, you see, is the key to pardon. And he says, I know my transgressions. He didn't say, I, I, I know that I, I didn't do quite right. He just simply used the word that God uses to speak of a breach that comes by rebellion. Pana is uh, uh, a, a word that, that speaks of, the, of the, the, the stepping over of the line, stepping over into sin, stepping over beyond what God allows. That's the idea. And my sin, my missing of the mark, is ever before me. Notice then he says, Against thee and thee only I have sinned and done this evil in thy sight. The thing we should understand and know is that sin, first and foremost, is sin against God. Don't ever think that when you sin, that, you are, that it's merely a private thing. If you're the only one involved, the only one uh, of the human race that is hurt as a result of your sin, you still aren't off the hook. You forgot one thing. All sin is offensive to God. You have offended God if there's sin in your life. That's simple, isn't it? You don't have to wonder, well, who did I hurt? You have offended God. And God will will uh, not be satisfied until you understand that. This was the thing, by the way, that was one of the steps in Joseph's strength in resisting 
sin. Uh, and, and by the way, it wouldn't be a bad idea to train yourself to use this terminology. It appears as though Joseph did. Because when, when Potiphar's wife came into him, he said, how can I sin and do this thing, this evil thing in the sight of the Lord? He knew that to sin with Potiphar's wife, even though nobody else would know about it, he knew that God knew and he knew that it was first and foremost an offense against God. In his heart of hearts, he might have entertained the thought that, that uh, this could be excused. After all, I'm the slave, and, and Potiphar's wife is the, is the master's wife. And yet what he said was, I can't sin against God. Forget it. I'm not going to do it. We would just learn to do that when we're tempted to sin. And, uh, and just, in a sense, say, this is a sin against God. Maybe say it out loud. This is a sin against God. It's not a private thing. It's not a personal thing. It's not between you and someone else. It's a wicked, wicked thing. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak, and blameless when thou dost judge. Now, he admits that it comes because of his original sin and so on, but he doesn't use that as an extenuating circumstance. He merely admits this thing is wrong. This thing is sin. Turn to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43. We spent some time a couple weeks ago in our study in the book of Proverbs in this beautiful um, passage dealing with the servant of Jehovah and the, the whole picture of God's um, working through Jesus Christ uh, here prophetically, of course. Here's what God says. He has already said that you have uh, you've come with your sacrifices and I despise your sacrifices. You come with your lambs and you come with your uh, with, with all of the ritual that you go through, but I'm not the least bit impressed. you know why? Here's what was necessary in order to have the kofar or the covering, the atonement for the sins of the people. They had to do two things. They had to bring a spotless lamb for sacrifice. That was the first thing. Secondly, as the sacrifice was being made, they laid their hand upon that sacrifice and confessed their guilt. All right? And what had happened in the nation of Israel was that everybody was bringing their sacrifice. It was required by the law. And so they would come, they would bring their sacrifice. Josephus tells us that the, uh, the uh, time of Passover when Jesus Christ was killed upon the cross, was, was, gave his life for our sin, that Passover time, Josephus says there may have been as many as three million animals slain that week. Now, you see, the thing is, they had streamlined the procedure. The people brought their sacrifice. They took their name. They marked them down, said, get out of here. And they stabbed the lamb, threw him aside, kept going, kept going, kept going. They were not taking the time for people to acknowledge their sin. 
Meanwhile, the sin went on. Everything was the same as before. They were worshiping idols. They were living in immorality. They were divorcing their wives. They were doing all of these things. There was no change. There was no difference. They brought their lambs. God, take my lamb. And God says, I'm sick of this. I'm not impressed. He says, look in verse 24, You have bought me no sweet cane with money, no sweet savor offering. Neither have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifice. Rather, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Okay, then look what he says. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgression for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue our case together. State your cause that you may be proved right. All right, you want to go at it? It's like God said earlier in Isaiah when he said, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. God's not afraid to argue with you. You want to argue with him? Fine. Man to man. Give me your case. Prove that you're right. Prove that adultery is all right. Prove that idolatry is all right. Look me in the eye and tell me it's right. That's what he's saying Come on, come on, come at it. Your first forefathers sinned. I'm familiar with this. And your spokesmen have transgressed against me. So I will pollute the princes of the sanctuary. I will consign Jacob to the ban and Israel to revilement. You want to argue with me? God says, all right. You go ahead and try to argue. What he's saying, in essence, in a negative way, is... You're going to lose. But he wants you to come and he wants you to face your sin. That's what we must learn.